This is History West Midlands. On the morning of the 12th of June, 1923, the Prince of Wales, the man who would never become king, took a silver trowel and ceremonially placed the foundation stone of what has become one of Birmingham's iconic civic buildings, the Hall of Memory. Paid for by public subscription, this neoclassical temple remembered the 12,000 men and women from Birmingham who died in the First World War and the 35,000 who came home disabled. A simple octagonal building of Portland stone with a low dome, it later became a memorial to the fallen from subsequent conflicts. Well-known author and broadcaster Carl Chin tells the personal and poignant stories of some of the men memorialised here and the building which commemorates them. Ypres is a place that has seared itself into both the collective soul and the communal memory of the British people. An historic cloth town lying in the flat landscape of northern Flanders, it has come to symbolise the sacrifice of a generation of young men in the Great War. This metamorphosis of Ypres into a focal point of remembrance began in mid-October 1914, when the area was overwhelmed by bloody fighting as the Germans strove to end the war quickly in a race to the sea. Their aim was to capture the channel ports and thus cut off the British expeditionary force from reinforcements and supplies from England. Derided by the Kaiser as a contemptible little army, the doughty troops of the British Expeditionary Force, helped by the valiant Belgians and French, held off a much greater German force. The cost, though, was horrendous. Between the 14th of October and the 30th of November 1914, the British lost 53,000 men, whilst over 4,500 Indian troops were also killed, wounded or went missing. Many, many more would be added to that terrible toll. From the first Battle of Ypres, a salient emerged. A bulge punching out from the British lines into the German positions, it could be attacked from three sides, to the east, the north and the south. Within that salient lay Ypres itself, which the Germans desperately wished to take, but which was defended resolutely against them throughout the war. Bombed relentlessly for four years, Ypres was all but razed to the ground and became known as the Martyred City. In recognition of the agonies its people had to bear, in 1920, Ypres was awarded the British Military Cross and the French Croix de Guerre. Nearby locations, such as Sanctuary Wood, were also held by the British, whilst the Germans occupied the Messines Ridge, Menin and Passchendaele. All of them call out to the death, destruction and misery of the Great War. Together with Ypres, they define the British experience of the First World War. Following the first great battle there, when a German breakthrough was thwarted, miles and miles of trenches were dug as the two sides came to face each other across the shattered fields of no man's land. From the First Battle of Ypres to the end of the Great War, between 220,000 and 240,000 men from Britain and the Empire would die in the small space of the salient. That was a third of all those who were killed in the First World War. 
the shattering statistics of death and injury and their equally shattering effects on the British consciousness have ensured that Ypres has become a place of pilgrimage for the many who wish to pay their respects to those who died. From all over Britain and the Commonwealth they come. Some are young and others are old. Some have made their way to honour a grandfather or uncle who did not return home. Others have gathered in reverence to the men of their town or of all the men who died in the battlefields of Ypres. Many will visit the In Flanders Fields Museum. Its exhibitions are powerful and emotive, distressing and personal, thought-provoking and compelling. In this most haunting of museums, the dead of both sides are brought together so that the living can comprehend the need for men and women of all kinds to live together in peace. More than a museum, in Flanders Fields is a precious repository of humanity for all its ills and good, and calls out not only of human suffering, but of human endurance and of human spirit. It is found in the spectacular Cloth Hall, one of the biggest and most imposing commercial buildings in medieval Europe, boasting a bell tower, spire and turrets. It was left in ruins after the Great War. Rebuilt between 1934 and 1958, it captures the indomitable will of the Flemish people who underwent four years of hellish conditions and who came through to rebuild their land. Ypres is a town infused with remembrance, as much for the British and Commonwealth nations as for the Flemish. As the Great War finally came to an end, Colonel Beckles Wilson, a serving Canadian, wrote that though it was a heap of ruins, but it is an eternal memorial of British valour. It is only a shell-swept graveyard, but the graves are those of our heroic dead. Ypres, and the expanse of earth spread out eastward, is in truth the holy ground of British arms. For the tens of thousands of gallant Frenchmen who fought and fell here, it must also be sacred to our allies. But the brunt of the defence for four years fell upon us, and 250,000 British dead lie within its borders. Winston Churchill felt the same. In January 1919, he declared that a more sacred place for the British race does not exist in the world. War cemeteries abound in the fields of Flanders, and in Ypres itself, those with no known grave are remembered at the Menin Gate Memorial to the Missing. Within its imposing hall of memory, the names of 54,896 British and Empire soldiers are inscribed upon large panels. Even so great a memorial is unable to name all those who died and have no known grave. Those who were killed after August the 15th, 1917, are inscribed on the Tyne Cop Memorial to the missing. There are 34,984 of them, whilst the names of all the missing New Zealand and Newfoundland soldiers are honoured on separate memorials. The Menningate Memorial was opened in 1927. Soon afterwards, the citizens of Ypres resolved to show their gratitude towards those who had given their lives for Belgium's freedom, and to do so in a fitting way. They formed a last post association to carry out a touching daily tribute. Since 1928, the road which passes under the memorial has been closed each evening. Hushed and sombre crowds then gather to hear buglers from the local volunteer fire brigade sound the last post at eight o'clock. 
Menin Road in Billsley commemorates the memorial. Developed immediately after the First World War, it was part of one of the first council estates in Birmingham and was cut out of the land of Billsley House. So too were Menin Crescent, Vimy Road and Jutland Road. These latter two recalled two major battles in the Great War. In three days of fighting in April 1917, the Canadian Corps captured the strategically important Vimy Ridge. Whilst on the 31st of May and 1st of June 1916, the British and German navies fought at Jutland off Denmark in the largest naval battle in the First World War. The result was inconclusive. By the time that the first residents had moved into Menin Road, it had become the custom to honour those who had died in the Great War on Armistice Day. This commemorated the effective end of the conflict at 11am on the 11th of November 1918. A year later, King George V asked the public to observe a silence at 11am that day so that the thoughts of everyone may be concentrated on reverent remembrance of the glorious dead. Throughout the interwar years, this mark of respect on Armistice Day was associated with veterans assembling and marching to remember their comrades who had died. The fallen were also honoured in war memorials of various kinds across Birmingham, some of which have been lost. Most of them are boards, plaques or tablets, but there are also windows, rolls of honour, books and stones of remembrance and walls. A few commemorate individuals, but most are collective memorials for men from council departments, workplaces, schools, churches, sporting clubs, regimental societies and specific areas. Then there are 17 crosses, most of which are by a church or at a prominent location in a district, such as that in Stetchford at the corner of Albert Road and Littleton Road. This names 52 local men who gave their lives during the Great War, and its inscription states, Erected by public subscription to the immortal memory of the men of Stetchford, who fell in the Great War, 1914-1918. to They nobly responded to the call of duty, and died that Britain might honour her pledged word against aggression, and that good faith, truth and justice should prevail among the nations. This cross is Grade 2 listed because, as the designation emphasises, it is an eloquent witness to the tragic impact of world events on the local community and the sacrifice it made in the conflicts of the 20th century. Whilst architecturally it is an accomplished and well-realised war memorial, which takes the simple form of cross with tapered shaft and octagonal base. Only one cenotaph in Birmingham commemorates those who were killed in the First World War. Grade 2 listed, it is at the front of the churchyard of St Peter and St Paul, Aston Parish Church. Its inscription states, Italy, France, Belgium. To the glorious memory of the officers non-commissioned officers and men of the 8th Battalion, the Royal Warwickshire Regiment, who laid down their lives in the Great War, 1914-1919, to and the World War, 1939-1945. to Another striking memorial is at the Birmingham Transport Ground, King's Heath. It is inscribed with the names of the 236 men from the Birmingham Tramways Department who lost their lives in the First World War. Made of Portland and Hopton Wood stone, and surrounded by its own Garden of Peace, it was dedicated on the 28th of May 1922, with 2,000 tramway employees in attendance, along with a large crowd which included relatives of many of the dead. From the 1920s, less official but just as moving memorials appeared in poorer working-class streets in Birmingham and other big towns and cities. 
They were a most important and distinctively working class form of commemoration for local men who had died in the First World War. Wooden plaques, placed in a wooden frame and on a prominent wall, listed the men from the street who had died. There were 30 men on the memorial in Greenway Street, Smallheath, a short street between Cattell Road and Little Green Lane. This high figure emphasises the number of families who suffered losses because of the Great War. The inscription above the Roll of Honour stated, To their immortal honour, to the eternal memory of those who have sacrificed their lives for king and country and the freedom of the world. There was another such memorial across the Coventry Road in Arthur Street, as there was in Heaton Street, Hockley, outside the Mission of All Saints Church. At such memorials, flowers could be placed in vases on a small shelf alongside the frame, which was usually decorated with Union flags. On Armistice Day, often on Good Friday, and on other important anniversaries of battles such as that of the Somme, a short service was held at the street memorials in honour of the local men who had died. Unhappily, all of these street memorials seem to have disappeared with the redevelopment of Birmingham in the 1950s and 60s. Important as they were, the focal point for remembrance in Birmingham was, and still is, the Hall of Memory, which enshrines the role of honour of the many thousands of Birmingham sons who died in the war. Its foundation stone was laid on Tuesday the 12th of June 1923 by Edward Prince of Wales during his first visit to the city. It was an event that drew tens of thousands of working-class people to the streets to cheer him as he crammed in as many engagements as possible in a little over 12 hours. Aware of the tough economic times that were causing distress to so many, the Prince had asked that no public money be spent in decorating the streets to celebrate his appearance. None was, but along the 34 miles of streets that he traversed, local residents and workers had taken it upon themselves to put up schemes of adornment of effective and impressive character, as one national journalist praised them. The day began with a civic welcome in the town hall. In reply, the prince trusted that he would gain some knowledge of your aspirations and your activities, which will not only enable me to realise why the name of this city is known throughout the empire, but will be of service to me in after life in studying the problems which all my generation will have to face. Of course, Edward was doomed never to become king because of his love for a divorced woman. But then, when he was a young man, he was loved by many for his concern for the unemployed and for the veterans of the Great War. Indeed, in his response, he referred to the institutional factory for the training of ex-servicemen, which he was going to inspect. The prince expressed his hope that the employers and trade unionists of Birmingham would do all that they could to find vacancies for the trainees. Thence, he set off to see as much as he could. According to the Manchester Guardian, everywhere he went, he passed through avenues of a cheering populace who threw flowers and waved flags. And at the different works, masses of the employees hurrahed, and with an enthusiasm that left no doubt of the immense popularity of the visitor. At Fort Dunlop, an excited work girl thrust a black cat for luck into the prince's hands, after which he chatted with men who had received the Victoria Cross and others who had lost their legs or arms in the service of their country. As well as visiting numerous factories, the prince set in motion the machinery of the corporation's electricity supply station and went to Hansworth Park, where a huge throng of wolf cubs gave him their fierce grand howl before he inspected the British Legion. 
In the midst of this activity, the prince laid the foundation stone of the Hall of Memory, which will enshrine the roll of honour of the many thousands of Birmingham sons who died in the war. He did so with a silver trowel and an ivory mallet, tools that were beautifully designed and executed at the Central and Victoria Schools of Art. Thousands watched respectfully and strained to hear the prince declare that the memorial would stand to symbolise to generations to come all that Birmingham stood for during a period of great national crisis. Work of every kind unflinchingly given, compassion to the sick and wounded, courage and resources in adversity, and, above all, self-sacrifice, dedicated as it was to the immortal memory of the heroic dead. The area chosen for this place of remembrance was towards the top of Broad Street, close to its junction with Easy Row, and it had been given by the corporation. The spot had been part of the grounds of the home of John Baskerville, the acclaimed printer, but in the early 19th century it had been cut through with canal arms, between which the land was filled with factories, wharves and commercial buildings. Some of these were cleared for the building of a memorial worthy of Birmingham's war dead. There is no doubt that the city's people had played their part to the full in the Great War. Over 150,000 men had answered the call to fight. Sadly, 35,000 of them were wounded and 12,320 were killed. Moreover, Birmingham's workers, women as well as men, had played a vital role in the war effort, turning out a multitude of munitions so vital to victory. The importance of Birmingham as a munitions centre was emphasised towards the end of the Great War in March 1918 when a group of journalists from British, American and Dominion newspapers visited the city they hailed it as the metropolis of the United Kingdom's munitions industry. Spending a week in and around the city, they visited various works and were staggered at the colossal scale of Birmingham's wartime production. Its immensity is beyond calculation. You work here, work night and day, without talk, with sleeves rolled up, and your shoulder to the task. So vast were the operations that... This industrial epic will never be written for the simple reason that no man is equal to the task. There is an article in every workshop, a volume in every trade. In each and every hive of industry, work proceeded. To the roar of the furnace, the hiss of escaping steam, the rhythmic throb of the engine, the crash of hydraulic presses, the metallic ring of stamping machines, and the clatter of lighter operations at the benches. The minds of the journalists were left with nothing but confused impressions. But out of this welter of ideas, Imperfectly grasped and imperfectly correlated, emerge two very distinct conceptions, one of immensity of effort and output, and the other of the power of organisation. No turn of a kaleidoscope had ever produced a more startling change than the total conversion accomplished in Birmingham for the munitions needs of a total war. Jewellers made anti-gas apparatus and other material. Firms noted for their art productions manufactured an intricate type of hand grenade. Cycle makers devoted their activities to fuses and shells. World-famous pen makers adapted their machines to produce cartridge clips. Railway carriage companies turned out artillery wagons, tanks and aeroplanes, and the chemical works attended to deadly TNT. Other factories manufactured a multitude of shells and fuses, rifles by the million, Lewis guns by the thousand, artillery limbers by the hundreds, monster aeroplanes and battalions of tanks, aeroplane engines and big guns. 
In fact, Birmingham had so transformed itself for the purposes of war that... It is well that the world should be made aware of the magnitude and the thoroughness of the achievement. Such a remarkable transformation had been achieved early in the war, so much so that it warranted a visit by King George V on July the 22nd and 23rd, 1915. Nominally a secret visit, it gained local attention as soon as the king arrived in the city. He first went to speak to wounded servicemen at the First Southern General Hospital at Birmingham University, and then he spent the afternoon at the works of the King's Norton Metal Company. That night, the King slept in his train in the neighbourhood of Shenston, and the next day he arrived at Gravelly Hill for a large programme of visits. First came Kynox Works at Witton. According to Reginald H. Brazier and Ernest Stanford in their book Birmingham the Great War, 1914-1919, to published in 1921, Though it was obviously impossible to see the whole of the works, which covered 50 acres, His Majesty went into a number of departments, selected with the object of giving him an idea of the various stages of manufacture and organisation of the factory, which even at that early stage of the war had resulted in the output being increased 600%. It is indicative of the object of the visit to the munitions works of the city that here, as at other places, not only were the principal officials presented to the king, but many departmental managers and old servants of the various companies. In this way, it was sought to show to the many thousand munition workers of the city that their efforts were of inestimable value to the nation and that they were appreciated at their real worth. From Witton, the King was taken to the Birmingham Small Arms Works at Small Heath, the Metropolitan Carriage Wagon and Finance Company at Saltley, the Birmingham Metal and Munitions Company at Adley Park, and finally the nearby works of Walsley Motors Limited. The King was encouraged by what he saw, and the successful manner in which factories had been diverted from their customary civil occupations. Unfamiliar labour, including that of many women and girls, who previously had never seen the inside of a factory, had been brought in and trained to new occupations, and it was the subject of astonished comment how quickly this inexperienced labour adapted itself to unfamiliar tasks, and how keen the women were to obtain the largest possible output. All the companies visited, as well as many more, played vital roles in the prosecution of a total war. But some of the biggest contracts went to the BSA, the Vickers Metropolitan Group of Factories and Kynox. The latter company had been started in 1862 by an intriguing and colourful Scotsman called George Kynock, a bank clerk from Peterhead. His business first made percussion caps in Great Hampton Street, but its operations expanded greatly when the Lion Works were opened at Witton. Alongside its cartridge huts were built rolling mills and this feature led to the eventual takeover of Kynex by ICI. During the First World War, the company expanded to take on 18,000 workers as it contracted to manufacture each week 25 million rifle cartridges, 300,000 revolver cartridges, 500,000 cartridge clips, 110,000 18-pounder brass cases and 300 tonnes of cordite. It did so successfully and during the last major German offensive in 1918, the output of Kynox cartridges reached 29,750,000 per week. These figures are even more impressive when it is taken into account that there are 102 operations in the manufacture of a single rifle cartridge 
and the limit of accuracy prescribed in nearly all the finished dimensions is within one thousandth of an inch. Bar for the cordite, everything involved in the production was manufactured in Birmingham. As for the BSA, the increase in output of rifles was astonishing. From an average of 135 rifles made per week in the five years before the war, production was increased to about 10,000 per week, whilst the output of Lewis guns rose from 50 a week to 2,000. In addition, the BSA manufactured bicycles and motor bicycles for the army and 150,000 aeroplane parts per week. The Vickers Metropolitan Group of factories in Birmingham also made a considerable contribution to the war needs of the nation. Tanks, aeroplanes and other larger engines of war were manufactured at its wagon works, whilst 38 million fuses and large numbers of anti-aircraft shells and naval and field cases were produced at the Electric and Ordnance Accessories Factories in Aston and Ward End. As notable a contribution was made by Worsley Motors, which built over 4,000 cars for use in the war, as well as 4,500 aero engines and sufficient engine spare parts to be the equivalent to another 1,500 engines. Additionally, Vickers turned out nearly 700 complete aeroplanes, 850 wings and tailplanes, 6,000 propellers, over 3 million shells and... The whole of the transmission mechanism of the British rigid airships. Finally. Nearly 300 British warships were fitted with director firing gear and gun sights made at Adderley Park, and 1,000 naval gun mountings were produced there. In 1921, when he was made a freeman of the borough, the Prime Minister, Mr Lloyd George, emphasised the importance of Birmingham in a speech at the Town Hall. He pronounced that... The country, the empire and the world ought to the skill, the ingenuity, the industry and the resource of Birmingham a deep debt of gratitude... And as an old Minister of Munitions, and as the present Prime Minister, I am here to thank you from the bottom of my heart for the services which you rendered at that perilous moment. As for the Birmingham men who had fought in the war, they too had made their mark, and they included ten who were honoured with the Victoria Cross. One of them was Arthur Vickers, who had been born in a backhouse in Woodcock Street, Gloucester Green in 1882. He'd gone to Dartmouth Street School and then, as a young man, joined the Royal Warwickshire Regiment just two days before the end of the Boer War on May 31st, 1902. Arthur Vickers served with the Colours for six years and afterwards became a millwright's mate at Lucas's. But as soon as the First World War began, he re-enlisted. However, because of his small stature, he had to go to six different recruiting officers before he found someone to accept him back into the army. At just five foot two, some thought that Arthur Vickers was too short to fight, but his bravery in 1915 would prove them wrong. That was a bad year for the British forces on the Western Front. There was a shortage of men, guns and ammunition, and British troops were used mainly in support of French strategy. In these circumstances, the British had suffered a number of tactical defeats. One of them was the Battle of Luz, at which Arthur Vickers distinguished himself by his gallantry. On the morning of September the 25th, 1915, the men of the 2nd Battalion, the Royal Warwicks, went over the top. Part of the 7th Division, they rushed from their trenches at 6.30 in the morning. Battling through a terrible wave of fire, they reached the first German trenches at the Hollock Quarries. But they found that the thick barbed wire which protected the enemy lines had not been cut as it should have been by the British bombardment which had preceded the assault. That's where Midge Vickers, as he was nicknamed, showed his grit and guts. 
He was one of only four men in his company who had been issued with heavy and cumbersome wire cutters. With his pals falling all around him, Arthur took matters into his own hands. Instead of lying down to try and cut the wire and so give himself some protection, Arthur stood up to allow himself more leverage. It was broad daylight and he was within 50 yards of the Germans, but he carried on regardless of the mayhem and violence all about him. As he told his sister, Amy Atkins of Park Road, Aston, I had to use both my hands until there was no more use in them. And he used those hands well, for Arthur managed to cut two paths through the thickets of barbed wire and so enabled his battalion to pass through and capture the first and second lines of the German trenches. Unhappily, though, later that day, the Warwicks had to pull back because they were exposed through the withdrawal of British troops on their flanks. That midnight, the Royal Warwicks presented themselves for muster. There were no officers left to take their names, and out of a total of 523 men who had gone out to battle that morning, only 140 could call out. The rest were dead, wounded or missing in action. The casualties would have been even higher without the actions of Arthur Vickers. For his defiant spirit and outstanding bravery, he was awarded the Medaille Militaire by the French and the Victoria Cross by the British. Arthur Vickers was the first of six men from the Royal Warwickshire Regiment to receive this, the highest of his own country's accolades. His citation read, During an attack by his battalion on the first-line German trenches, Private Vickers, on his own initiative and with the utmost bravery, went forward in front of his company under very heavy shell, rifle and machine gun fire and cut the wires which were holding up a great part of the battalion. Although it was broad daylight at the time, he carried out this work standing up. His gallant action contributed largely to the success of the assault. Arthur Vickers was later honoured by his own city, along with Lieutenant Herbert James VC. Although Arthur was unable to be present at the ceremony in Victoria Square, Alderman Neville Chamberlain, the Lord Mayor, declared that there can have been few acts which were finer than that performed by Lance Corporal Vickers. He received his VC from King George V at Buckingham Palace in March 1916 and after the war he was one of 320 holders of the medal who dined with the Prince of Wales in the Royal Gallery of the House of Lords on Armistice Day 1929. During peacetime, Arthur Vickers served with the Territorials and worked at the GEC at Witton. Sadly, he died of TB in 1944 and fittingly his widow gave his medals to the Museum of the Royal Warwickshire Regiment. In 1998, Developers IM Properties erected a plaque in Arthur's honour at the Junction 6 Industrial Park, the site of the old GEC factory. Then, on Friday, September the 25th, 2015, the Westside Business Improvement District honoured him at the Hall of Memory on a special Private Arthur Vickers Day. Albert Gill was another Birmingham man who was honoured with a VC, in his case, posthumously. Serving with the King's Royal Rifle Corps on the 27th of July 1916 at Delville Wood on the Western Front, the Germans made a very strong attack on the right flank of Albert's battalion. They succeeded in rushing the bomb post and killing all of the company bombers. Sergeant Gill rallied the remnants of his platoon, none of whom were skilled bombers, and reorganised their defences. This was a most difficult and dangerous task because the British trench was very shallow and much damaged. Soon afterwards, the enemy crept through the thick undergrowth, surrounded Sergeant Gill's men and began sniper fire from about 20 yards range. 
Although it was almost certain death, Sergeant Albert Gill stood up boldly to direct the fire of his men. He was killed almost at once, but he allowed his men to hold up the enemy advance and so saved a very dangerous situation. There is a memorial to him where he had worked at the post office in Keyhill, Hockley. With the coming of peace, the citizens of Birmingham were resolved that the men like Sergeant Gill would not be forgotten. Indeed, soon after the First World War had begun, the Lord Mayor, Alderman W.H. Bowater, had inaugurated a roll of honour to commemorate the Birmingham men who had fallen. These names were recorded at the Lord Mayor's Parlour, and soon the feeling grew that there should be a more permanent memorial. So, in 1920, designs for a Hall of Memory were invited in a competition for Birmingham architects only. It was won by S. N. Cook and W. Norman Twist, both of whom were ex-servicemen. Through a public subscription, over £60,000 was raised for the clearance of the site and the building of the Hall of Memory. The demolition was carried out by Martin Changretta, an Italian Brummy who had lost a son in the war, whilst the builders were John Barsi and Sons and John Bowen and Sons, who mostly employed local men. Octagonal in shape, made of Portland stone and covered with a low dome pierced by a single light in the crown, the Hall of Memories entered through massive cast iron doors. It is flanked by four bronze statues carried out by Albert Toft to symbolise the contribution made to the war by the Navy, Army, Air Services and women. Inside is a shrine which supports a bronze casket. Within it lies a magnificently inscribed and illuminated First World War Roll of Honour designed by Sidney Metiard of the Birmingham Central School of Arts. After 1945, a Roll of Honour was added for those who died in the Second World War and across the hall is a third Roll of Honour which contains the names of those citizens who have died in campaigns since. On the walls are three bas-reliefs designed by local artist William Boy and they indicate different aspects of the Great War. The first is Call and shows men leaving home to join up. It records that Of 150,000 who answered the call to arms, 12,320 fell. 35,000 came home disabled. The second is Frontline. It depicts a party of men in the firing line and bears the powerful words At the going down of the sun and in the morning we shall remember them. The third portrays the wounded and maimed coming home. It states simply yet movingly See to it that they shall not have suffered and died in vain. His Royal Highness, Prince Arthur of Connaught, officially opened the Hall of Memory on the 4th of July 1925. On that solemn occasion a huge crowd assembled to pay their respects at a building erected to the glory of God and in memory of the men and women of this city who fell in the Great War. Visit our website www.historywm.com to see a series of films and listen to podcasts about how World War changed the lives of the people of the West Midlands. And also watch our short film about Birmingham-born civic sculptor William Bloy, whose work is an important element of the Hall of Memory. Make sure you don't miss our fascinating new programmes. Register for our free newsletter and download the History West Midlands On Air app at the iTunes App Store.